Welcome to NFT. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy. Really excited to get into this episode where I am joined by Nadav Zemmer. He's an award-winning principal, author, and blockchain expert. And what he's doing around thinking through how Web3 and NFTs could upend and seriously disrupt high school education is tremendously interesting. As many of you know, my background is as a former principal as well. So we just, uh, we, we broed out on education, we talked about how he's approaching this. And I think like, if you can open your mind and just listen to what Nadav is saying, uh, it's going to make you really curious to learn more about him. So without further ado, let's jump into it with Nadav Zemmer. Here we go. Fine wine has long been a cornerstone of wealth generation and preservation. The problem? Historically, it's been reserved for the ultra wealthy. VinoVest is changing that. If you know me, you know I'm always looking for the next big player in the industry. I was amazed at how easy it was to get started in diversifying your investment portfolio. Wine has one-third the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized returns, proving that the returns can be as robust as your favorite red. VinoVest makes it easy to acquire new investments equipped with a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell, and even drink them whenever you want. Go to zen.ai slash nfteach to receive two months of fee-free investing on VinoVest. Be sure to mention that NFT is helping you save on two months of management fees. It's time to start investing with VinoVest today. Joining me on the Aspen guest line is none other than Nadav Zemmer. This is going to be a lot of fun today uh, as we're going to be talking to a blockchain expert who is really focused at the intersection of technology and education. Uh, Nadav, Jeremy. welcome to NFT. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. So there's a lot in common between us as we got in in the pre-call. Um, we are both bald and beautiful. We both have a lovely beard that is almost literally the same length. Um, I, you have glasses on. I have contacts. So um, there's a, a, a tinge of visual impairment between the both of us. And we're both retired educators. So I want to just start by letting you tell your story of what led you to be focused on Web3 tech and tech in general and what led you out of school. So set it up for us. Yeah, uh, I started as a software engineer. Um, so kind of my buddies from my early days were engineers. Um, and so those connections remained. And I went into, in 2003, I went into education uh, as a physics teacher and a robotics coach, had some success, became a high school principal um, since 2010. Um, and throughout that journey, I actually had started right before I became uh, an educator, I had started a nonprofit called Sound of Mind, and we were trying to create podcasting before that word existed. And at the time, the internet couldn't handle audio, so we were doing CD magazines and standing at street corners and throwing them to people's cars and um, and, and creating tools for people to contribute to our magazine just using their phone. And um, we had some, some great stuff, but we were just too early, right? Seven years later, we would have been, uh, you know, the hottest ticket. So I brought that into my classroom and noticed that there was a metacognitive thing happening when I had students create podcasts um, about uh, physics. They would explain and teach each other. And then the editing piece, there was something really magical that happened when they had to edit and choose the important pieces. And then we went deeper when I became a principal and we started doing that with video. 
Um, and we turned around a failing school that was listed in the papers as shut down when we took over. And 18 months later, we were a top-rated school, stayed top-rated the whole time. And this is a school for second-chance kids, so kids coming out of prison or we had a daycare taking care of their kids' kids. And um, so people kind of just didn't know how we did that, what was going on. And it was just media. It was just getting that digital literacy isn't pen and paper. It's having kids produce audio and video. And so even a kid who can't read or write um, would be able, they, they're really good at asking questions and listening. And so they would start finding their academic chops and then learn how to, you know, they would dive in. And so we produced these unexpected results and um, it won school. But then suddenly when NFTs happened um, and I would try to tell people what I'm doing and people that visited my school felt the magic and they just kind of experienced it. But trying to explain it to people, people you know, other principals didn't really get it or people didn't get it until they came and visited NFT, I would say three letters and people would start, get, I would say an NFT credit or an NFT transcript. And really quickly, people could unpack what we were talking about of combining media with some kind of academic capital, right? And so these new forms of capital that are coming about, like social capital, opened the way to think about something like academic capital. or um, And then the idea that if um, social media produces social capital, what if academic media produce academic capital? So youth media is how we store academic capital. So I, we just started riffing on this with my friends as kind of a joke. Then I got more serious on it and wrote a book. And then a bunch of people came around the book and now there's a company and we're building an app. Um, and it's uh, it's gone to places that I could never imagine. Um, and, and by uh, the end of this year, we'll be out in the world and students will be able to use this. It's crazy. It, 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 so much of your story was, was resonating with me in, in a number of ways, uh, both as a former urban school leader, um, and, and then also, you know, trying to make sense of this technology and figure out how it could help education. I want to stay there a bit with you because you brought up things like transcripts, uh, being international uh, as a principal. When I was trying to make decisions about hiring teachers, I mean, when I'm hiring from all seven continents and you're trying to make sense of someone's credentials, you don't really know if they're real, to be honest with you. You hope they're, I mean, they can be attested, but if they're coming from, you know, a country where you're not familiar with their their documentation, it's really tough to sort of make decisions about hiring qualified staff. So I, I'd love to just let you riff a bit on like, where are some of the low hanging fruit for how traditional education could be utilizing NFT yeah. Uh, technology. So, you know, this industrial age high school, I'm a high school person. I don't know elementary school. This industrial age high school hasn't been around that long. And we're not inventing anything new in terms of education, right? Um, student centered learning existed before that Waldorf schools and all these things. There's a lot of methods. So it's, we're going back to more ancient forms of teaching with project based or performance based teaching. And what's happening now is we're using um, you were saying that other countries, you can't check credentials, but right now, public schools, unless it's a well-known elite public school, the transcript is meaningless because you can graduate from public school and not know how to read, right? So that's why we had to do the standardized tests and the college essays and all this stuff on top of it because, and it's and it's very similar to fiat currency because the government can't help. The incentives are for them to keep printing credits, keep printing credits because they want the graduation rate each year to tick up. So no matter how much money we spend on education, we can't actually get test scores to go up. We keep exponentially spending more, doubling, doubling, doubling. And it's because that old industrial model is broken. What it's effectively measuring is which kids are prepared for jobs that AI is going to take because it's which kids are good at sitting down, shutting up and doing what they're told. 
that is not the skill set that we need in a digital age, right? The, the, the types of skills that frustration tolerance, um, learning how to deal with feedback, right? The, the kinds of things you need to be a creator rather than a consumer of content. So the people that are going to dominate the digital world are a different skill set and the kids know it. So they're disengaging and we're measuring the wrong things. And so, like you said, there's just no good data. And I'm a data guy. I was always known as a data guy as a principal. I, I led workshops on how to use data as a principal. So what we're doing is just creating a, 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 a data set with the metadata of our NFTs for people to see where project-based learning or performance-based assessment um, is being well implemented. Um, and so that's our NFT-based transcript is just all about that, giving a measure that is relevant to the digital age and going back to more ancient forms of teaching. Yeah, I mean, the blockchain as a concept is a trust layer, right? Like that's that's the promise of blockchain, that you can increase trust and therefore you can like sort of eliminate um, intermediaries and you can become more decentralized. So right. it makes sense. And, and so now I have some questions about how do we get to that aspirational place of, you know, not requiring what we know is is not useful for the students. Like we like I don't think any oh, we can say in high school, I don't think any high school math teacher could tell you that the math sequencing of algebra one, geo, algebra two, pre-calc, calc, AP calc is doing really anything that's going to prepare them for any aspect of these skills that you're describing about, like, how do you push through failure? How do you handle feedback? You know, like, uh, so, so I'm just curious on like, what are the, some of the, the big turning points and the big milestones in between where we are today and the aspirational landscape that we want to get to where we don't have to be so dependent on these other trust layers that we know don't really mean anything. Like, I mean, we know that grades are essentially the whim of the teacher, um, you know, bestowing upon a child a certain level of performance. What, what's on the test is up to the teacher in most instances, how it's assessed, et cetera. So I just be curious to get your ideas on how do we sort of get from point A to point B in uh, some of the big things that have to change in your opinion to do that. Yeah. Um, so there's, I, I talk about it as an inversion. And so there's a lot that I can unpack in there. Um, but the inversion is kind of the, the teacher as bestower of knowledge um, to and the, and the speaker, right, to the teacher as the listener and the coach and the students as producers. So we're having students shift from being consumers of content to being producers of content. Um, and so that requires it a student-centered classroom, but that also requires student buy-in. So just how we um, implement that in our technology and our platform, we invert the credit. So instead of cramming for an exam at the end of a unit and preparing for the final exam to get the grade, we do that at the front end. You have to cram for the exam before the credit starts to show that you're staking what we call staking content. You have to put skin in the game as a student and show you're serious about learning this because you're going to take on a project that takes some initiative. So you're learning, reading a book, learning materials, and you tell us, here are the, here are the materials that I covered to do this project. And that's what gets you in the door to start it. So we're screening out people who aren't willing to do the hard work of being creators at the front end to save them from the frustration of going through a whole course and failing at the end. Now, once they're in through that staking phase, that's the content layer. As an educator, I think of content layer, application layer, extension layer. So the content layer we're covering at the front end, and that's the high stakes part. Now you're in and you've gotten approved to the credit and with the teacher. And now the project-based learning begins. You manipulate that content to produce a piece of media, a video or a podcast segment of 10 minutes, right? With three revisions, multiple revisions, you're getting feedback, right? And you're getting a good quality product at the end. And the last piece that's critical 
is it's not your teacher who's evaluating you. You upload it to our platform and there are three credit experts that evaluate it. They're paid $150 an hour to do this. Um, so for each 10 minute segment, they get 25 bucks. And um, so the three have to approve your piece. So your teacher who's coaching you, their incentive is to not get you to pass the credit, but get you to to um, get the student to understand when the credit is ready to be passed. Because if they can accurately predict when the credit experts on our platform will, will approve a piece, they can become a credit expert and make that 150 bucks an hour. So ultimately, I'm saying a lot here, but it's really about choosing incentives. Aligned incentives. Aligned right, exactly. incentives, man. It it's, and it's the whole ethos of Web3 in general, right? right. It's about creating aligned incentives for a community to have a certain project hit a certain floor. It, so I, I uh, it's really interesting. I, I think that what you're describing is really powerful. Uh, so the idea of front loading content, here's my question from, from, uh, you know, an educator's perspective yeah. is like, how do you create the hooks to get them through, especially in their first initial go round to absorb that content? Because, you know, we, sort of in traditional ed, right? We talk about like the hook to the lesson or how are we going to get them hooked and engaged? It's not super sexy to learn a bunch of content with the promise that you're going to apply it, right? So right. what have been some of the high leverage yes. strategies you've seen in getting them invested yep. through that first stage? So you talked about uh, low hanging fruit. We are only a transcript for the last two years of your K through 12 journey. So what we traditionally called juniors and seniors, but you can be up to 25 years old and be a junior or senior in our book. It's what you consider the last two years before you go out into college or the world of work. So we're taking the students that should be able to read content, take notes, right? And and use that. And we so we have those basic expectations of the front. Now, the other piece is instead of standards, we have skills and each skill has a assessment that the accredited experts use. So what we're telling students is you study, you look into what you're interested in, right? And, but we want you to apply these academic skills of critical thinking, of research, of writing, right? The, the skills that we're applying from the content areas or from the field of, is what you're practicing. So it's like going to the gym and practicing the skill, but you can dive into what you're interested in. So we, we have you kind of study the content to show that you have something, some understanding of the field, but then you're going to choose what you're interested in and we're going to follow that. It's that student-centered approach. So at first, we're only going to have very few students adopt this. We're going to have the early adopters who get this. Right. And it's going to take a spreading of students sharing with students. We're not coming from the top down, from the administrator down. We're coming from the students up so that students are advocating for this because it's relevant and it makes sense. And because we have crypto incentives for them, because the early adopters, because colleges won't accept these at the beginning, the early adopters are going to get very wealthy if this platform takes off. So not only do they have an incentive with the crypto they receive, they receive a thousand coins uh, per month for 25 years. And then that goes down to so the early adopters get a huge crypto. And then they, as more years pass and as more credits are on the platform, we have a growing community of young people who are advocating for this platform, not just for their own benefit, but because they see that this transition to digital creator economy um, benefits everybody, right? So the it's, it's the incentives. It's choosing the 11th and 12th graders who actually can produce high quality digital media. Um, and then it's focusing on their skills rather than on telling them what to do and, and having something come from the teacher down. Yeah, there's two things that sort of jumped out to me in hearing you describe that. The first is, man, I, I think it's really powerful what you're describing, but the fact that we really have to benchmark 11th grade as the first opportunity for people to get meaningful, um, if for some kids, the first time they'll have any meaningful creationary experience at all is, 
I think an indictment in itself. I'm not asking you to comment on that. I'm just saying that from my perspective. Like, and and I think it speaks to this sort of global K-12 issue of like, I, I think it's fascinating that I don't think anyone thinks the system works right now. Right. Like exactly. I, I don't That's think true. like we we know that like test book companies are in, in you know, they're they have hooks into the assessment companies and it's like this this big nasty cycle. And we also know that like, you know, elementary education, I, I think about what was kindergarten standards fifteen years ago, you know, now um, you, you have really second grade, third grade standards that are pushed down in into yeah. kindergarten. And I don't think like we're seeing uh, some achievement gap disappear internationally either. So there's a lot of conflating issues that that are happening within the K-12 sector. And so on one hand, I go like, this is super cool. And this is amazing that students will get this opportunity. The aligned incentive structure makes a lot of sense. But then on the other hand, the fact that we really have to benchmark 11th grade as a place to start thinking this way. And I'm not saying we like, you know, you, I'm saying we in, in general, like it troubles me for a bunch of other reasons, because, you know, my kids are really lucky. Well, they're unlucky. They have to deal with me all the time, but they're lucky in the sense that like my eight-year-old, I can have conversations about this stuff. He's so interested in it. And he, already at eight, he's like yeah. dying to to learn these things. He's passionate about it. Right. Yeah. But like, what about, what about parents who haven't been exposed to this? And, yeah. and how, how do we sort of take the knowledge base? Because, you know, in one we're talking about the barrier to getting kids motivated to do this, which aligned incentives will help, no doubt. But what about the parental barriers, man? Because like I know, like especially both having experience in the hood and having experience in the Middle East that um, in the hood less so, but in the Middle East, like the parents were the obstacle, man. They, they have a very narrow construct on what student success should be uh, is focused on engineering and medicine only. Um, so, so what's the education level and what do you think some of the strategies are so we can get parents more knowledgeable and familiar about all this stuff that's happening outside of traditional, the traditional education world and outside of the schema of what they did when they were in school? Right. Yeah. So there's a few pieces in there. Um, for the parents, like you said, people know that standardized testing and standardized thinking is failing. So there is a general understanding in New York, 27 or some odd percent of middle schoolers and elementary schoolers are opting out of standardized tests. The problem is in high school, you can't opt out because then you can't go to college, right? So there's no, so this is for the early adopters. We have 20 some odd percent of New York families that are going to be able to choose us that opted out through elementary and middle school, then get to high school and have no option. This gives them something to opt into in high school. So we have a base to start from. And there are some parents that will not be the early adopters. They will not join us for that first round. But if we can get 30%, 27% of students on board, now we're starting to build momentum enough for universities. And universities want to shift to away from standardized testing. They get it more than anybody does, right? So as we start giving them an option for something to opt into, they're going to start saying, we prefer the project-based learning credits as a goal that this will become known as the gold standard credit. And then the other, the late adopting parents will be like, I want the gold standard for my child. Right. And we'll start diving in and learning to study the data. The other piece you were talking about, about lamenting the 11th and 12th grade, it's actually very strategic for us. There's a lot of initiatives in education that try to go from pre-K and 14 years later, they realize they made no difference. 
the thing here is in two years, we're going to be able to tell if the kids that are graduating, we made the difference so we can adjust the system quickly. And the other piece is if you change the data that we're collecting at the end of the K-12 journey, if this becomes the gold standard over standardized testing, over transcripts and you know the state-run transcripts, over everything else, it changes all the incentives for everybody before that to prepare for this rather than to prepare for teaching to the test. Because right now, everybody asks, is it going to be on the test? It's not just the students. The teachers are asking, is this going to be on the test? Because that's what they get evaluated by. So when we can change that teaching to the test, which is our entire mission at, at HS Credit, if we can change uh, teaching to the test to teaching to projects that the students are you know, creating and editing and doing that metacognitive piece to, to create a piece of media, um, then the K through 10 piece will start rearranging to get us ready for these gold standard credits. So it's going to take a few, you know, kind of cycles to get us there from the early adopters to mass adoption. Um, but uh, I think that the, our strategy of working with 11 through 12 is to change the entire system, not just to have it there. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, um, proving, and you're a data guy, so I know you've thought through this, but like proving that students who have this gold standard is, is actually the gold standard. What sort of thoughts have you had on how you're going to structure that study, both quantitatively and qualitatively out five years, 10 years out from, you know, these, this initial group of kids? And, and, and what do you think some of the success beacons would be for people who've completed this program in 11th and 12th grade? Like, what do you think success looks like for them? Yeah. Um, you know, so if you talk to employers or especially DAOs, I've, I've talked to a few people that are running DAOs and they say nobody comes with the skills we need. So the first thing is just those skills that we talked about before, frustration tolerance of being able to produce something and being able to deal. And I generally think of it as measuring um, dealing with um, complicated versus dealing with complex. Right. Standardized tests are made to be complicated and they you know obfuscate to, to make the you know, to, so that they can screen kids out. Um, versus complexity, which is answering questions that don't have a clear answer. Standardized tests require a answer, and did you get the right answer, versus project-based learning, which is about how did you deal with the complexity and the nuance and take a position and use evidence right, to make your claim. And so I think part of it is the proof is in the pudding. Our transcript, you can click on any credit and watch the media that was behind it, and you can see the type of thinking. It's like getting to enter the classroom and watch what's going on. You can see the type of thinking. But then the other piece is, universities and employers starting to say the students that had these credits deal with ambiguity, deal with uncertainty, deal with failure at a whole nother level. And so I think we'll start seeing that both in the media that they produce, but then in the outcomes that they have in the real world in terms of being able to start businesses or become creators or, you know, deal with shipping product in the real world with all the complexity that comes with dealing with human beings to get something out the door. I have two nasty parts of the business to talk to you about, my friend. I love it. Not of, what about higher education? Because, you know, we're talking about two years, we're going to get it right. We're going to give people the opportunity. Where is the the value prop or the, the opportunity for some universities to start thinking about the way that they structure their post-secondary offerings to sort of align with this? And have you thought through what that could look like potentially at the higher education level? Yeah, no, I'm so clear that I do not know elementary, middle school or university. I have friends that can talk to, you know, Dr. Zach Stein, I have a few people who, could, who are experts at the university level, and they have, um, I think, brilliant um, thoughts about how that's going to go in the conceptual level. I am not theoretical. I'm practical. I'm about solutions, right? I want to see something on the ground working, and I'm not 
Um, I'm not post-secondary and I'm not, pre- I'm, I'm really a high school guy and that's all I know. And I know that I don't know anything else. I have no solutions for, for, for post-secondary. Great, I know it's complicated. Yep. Okay. So then let's stay in something that is high school focused, which is it, where does AP and the nastiness of advanced placement fit into all this too? Why yeah. do I say that? Right. AP is literally about cramming as much knowledge uh, as possible uh, so that you can regurgitated on a standardized assessment. And if so, a college may offer you a select amount of, of credit and it's not set in stone what you're offered. Conversely, if you don't get a certain score on that AP exam, you'll get your your credit on your transcript, but it's, it's not really providing you with any sort of uh, assistance toward college because I don't, most people who take AP courses say this really isn't like college at all. So right. I'd love to get your take on AP how do, you know, where does AP fit, if anywhere? And, and where do you, how, how much of any does the, the challenges that AP provides, did it fit into your inspiration for creating this? Well, it, it fits in because the problem they're trying to solve is gold standard credits. They were trying to solve the same problem. They just solved it with standardized testing, which I think is a mistake. And it's a mistake that most educational from race to the top to no child left behind, like everybody has used um, kind of making a better factory as a solution to the factory model. And what I'm saying is we got to dump the factory model. It doesn't mean we have to change anything. It just means we have to change our relationship and the way we listen to young people. So the AP, I, I respect them because they managed to create what is considered a gold standard with the IB and a few of the others. And what I hope is that their commitment to high quality data as a data guy is that they'll be able to make an option. They'll be able to go on our platform and say, okay, these credits, these skill sets, we approve as AP certified. We're seeing the work and we say this is, and so instead of an AP exam that you take at the end of a year of learning, you upload 10 videos, one per month through the school year. And that collection of 10 um, video audio segments will count as an AP credit if they're approved by the um, by the credit experts on the platform so that we can give the college board a way to shift their weight from standardized testing over to project-based learning, over to performance-based assessment. We're gonna give them uh, something to opt into again so they can keep doing what they're committed to of really having the best evaluative system in the world for, um, you know, for, for, you know, high school um, credits. But we're going to I think they're I hope that they somewhere there they recognize that this is better. And if they don't, we're going to eat them alive. But I think that um, I would I would much rather work with them and bring the college board on board and have them we have on the platform institutions like that can endorse some of the credits and they can endorse it after they've seen a bunch of them and they see the level that's being approved. They can see what's being rejected. Right. So they can endorse um, once they see that something meets that value or they can create their own um, evaluation and have their own credit experts on the platform as long as it's authentic learning and that they're evaluating the performance based assessment, not standardized testing. Not of God bless you because you're a much more optimistic person than I am because we've spent a long, a long a large portion of our chat in this chat talking about aligned incentives. And unfortunately, I don't know that they have aligned incentives yet currently or in the, the, you know, the next three to five year window to change things. And I feel like that was part of my frustration. I wanted to create and I wanted to do and I wanted to give students a better opportunity. And I just felt like it didn't matter what continent I was in. The yeah. same barriers were yeah. there regardless well, of it. The, the the one reason I'm optimistic is, I, so I did this at a school in the New York City Department of Education, which notoriously broken school system, right? And everybody would ask me, all the other principals say, how are you getting away with this? What the hell are you doing? And what I would say is when the auditors come into my building, 
they are auditors first, but they're also human beings. And you, they felt the magic. The minute they walked in and a student walked up to them with a microphone and said, can I interview you? you? And they were blown away by the depth of the questions and kind of the insights. So they, knew, they would walk in and say, oh my God, something magical is happening here. And it was like magic. The auditors would get sent in and slowly just back their way out because as a human being, they knew that something magical was happening here and that they should get the fuck out of the way because they're going to hurt it, right? And not to mention that when the state auditors came to audit our credits, every other school, they'd say, let me see that this kid earned this credit. And they would show them a syllabus page, right? And the attendance list. We click on the video and say, watch this. And they would be like, they, they would cry. A lot of them, because our kids went through rough times. They would A kid would be talking about the foster care system and interviewing people. like, And they would start crying. Like the auditors would start crying. So human beings still run these organizations. If they open our app and our kids with their work move them, they will start advocating from the inside and say, we, we, this is, as a human being, this is what we need to start pushing for. And so the proof is going to have to be in the pudding. The kids are going to have to lead the way with the content that they create. And that has to be inspiring enough to get individuals in these organizations to start saying, let's start focusing on that. The, the other thing that it, this whole conversation evokes for me is that there's a huge opportunity for workforce to step up and embrace what you're doing and what you're building and championing the skills that are being taught and demonstrated because you know workforce has the ability to wave a wand and say yeah we want these kids tomorrow we like if they can do this we need them now and if that happens that creates a ripple on everyone because it's all about right you know especially for people who have served in areas of the United States to have a high, you know, high percentage of free and reduced lunch. You know, the game is about breaking the cycle of poverty for students. That's what we all talk about. So it's hard to say, you know, no, do it this way. When kids that are coming out of your program are getting jobs that are allowing them to start, you know, uh, a life and a career in a growing field that's, that's blossoming, um, and potentially without having to take on the student debt that are, saddles so many people across the United States. So uh, I think that workforce needs to step up here too, and organizations have an opportunity to embrace the approach that you're bringing here. And when you do that, it can create you know a, a ripple across the K-12 sector and around the higher education sector, because Absolutely. in the end, that's what higher ed is supposed to do too, prepare people for the workforce. And there's plenty of questionable data to say that I don't know that that's happening either. Um, so yeah, I, I the nice really thing inspired. about this platform is that the data is so high resolution because you're seeing videos they produce in, in, in addition to the metadata that we collect about race, gender, all the other stuff. But the, the fact that you can get in there and see this high resolution view, we're counting on that selling itself, the media that students produce Right. And I've and we produce hundreds of films in my school and that's what sold it. That's, you know, people would see this stuff and be like, oh, my God, what is going on? And they would come visit. So we're counting on the student leadership and the content that they produce being what lets employers start recognizing that there is something here and checking it out um, and then opting into it rather than just being against something. It's hard to just be against standardized testing, even if you know they're broken until you have something to be for. And so hopefully, at least for a cohort of people, we will be the thing that they can be for. And my goal is to have our platform nonprofit. So have our platform be the darling um, nonprofit of the crypto industry so that all the crypto rich are investing because they get that if we can educate our kids this way, they're going to get crypto. They're going to get, you know, Web3. They're going to get all the things that will help their crypto bags increase, too. So um, I, I hope that the crypto community is part of what helps us launch this so we can have the marketing budget and do the other things that we need to get this out of the world in a big way. 
aligned incentives, my man. That's the takeaway from today. We're talking That's about right. how how do we create wins for everyone? And uh, uh, Nadav, it, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. It's been really inspiring. And I hope people can support the work that you're doing because I think it really matters. And there's a lot of talk about um, NFTs and education starting now. And all of this is happening, but it's happening from much more of a sort of how can creatives monetize their gifts and talents perspective to how to sort of upend the the traditional education system. So um, I'm really inspired by this conversation and I'm really grateful that I've had the chance to have you on. Where can people connect with you, talk with you more, ask you questions, interact with what you're building in the community around what you're trying to create right now? Like what's sort of the drop for all of that information? Yeah, I think talk to me directly. Z, like the letter Z, end of the alphabet at hs.credit. Emailing me directly is the best way. Our our team just doubled, and so we're kind of overwhelmed with just the speed of growth. So we're actually not accepting new. We don't have new contributions. But if people email me ideas and thoughts, they lead to things. Um, and then on on you know socials and whatever else. But if you just um, z at hs.credit, I think just having a conversation with me directly at this point is probably the best way to engage in a conversation that's meaningful. Oh, do you have a Twitter handle for either yeah. what, for HS Credit or for yourself personally? Either one. Yeah. So um, HS Credit, we I think we have LinkedIn right now, and the Twitter will get set up. I didn't want to create until I could manage it. So now the interns that are starting now, we have a cohort of fifteen that are starting started last week. Um, but the on LinkedIn, there's definitely a page for HS Credit, and my Twitter handle is first initial last name, so N Z E I M E R. Um, but if you just um, look for me, also my Medium articles, if you want to read about this beyond my book, of reading the book. Um, those are ways you can find out more before getting in touch. Yeah, great. I, I just followed you on Twitter. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, Nadav Zemmer, it's been a real pleasure having you on and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. And and I'm, I'm like really proud as a as a former educator uh, to see someone who's taking this on and trying to, to fight this battle because it's really, you know, uh, it's the most important battle that we can fight because it, it really is the only way to start to create a sort of equitable access for people because right now it's kind of tied to who who your parents are and that's really unfair to a lot of kids who maybe don't have the same opportunities as others so uh really inspired by what you're building uh gonna get all this information in the show notes and look forward to having you on in the future thank you the pleasure is mine